We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Ramzi Abu Ismail. Ramzi is a political psychologist and doctoral researcher at University of Kent. We discuss political psychology within the Lebanese context and dive into issues related to shared identity, Lebanon's social pact, and the lacking higher interest of the state. Our conversation includes the role of institutions when examining common destiny, politics born out of October 17, and the relationship between groups and individuals and a sense of belonging. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. I signed up for a psychology course, undergraduate, freshman, first semester in university. I fell in love with psychology and I ended up pursuing a psychology degree. Family wanted engineering. I took engineering courses, but I never pursued engineering. I just made them happy with engineering. I never actually got a degree. So I had psychology. And then I took an elective, political science, fell in love with political science, decided to double major, psychology and politics. And it's still on my bachelor's degree, two degrees, psychology, political science. I think the natural conclusion should have been then a sort of natural pursuit in political psychology, which I didn't do. I ended up doing history. But these two words, and when I see them together, I think they take me back to my own initial curiosity about many things, whether it's identity, whether it's conflict, whether it's violence, whether it's nation building, and kind of this this sort of dance, looking at politics through psychology and looking at psychology through politics. The reason I pursued political psychology was to try to understand the Lebanese situation and I I feel that many people are very prejudiced towards those living abroad, as if if you're living abroad, this means that uh, you're so well off that you're Mm. disconnected. And therefore, anything you say is uh, you're theorizing over situations that you're not living, uh, which I think is, is very unfair because I don't think anyone would understand and how it feels like to be connected to a place you don't live in until you've actually experienced that. And once you do that, you realize it's, it's extremely hard because th- there's a vision of this place in your mind. Mm. And then there's a reality that you can't connect to physically. And then there's the fact that you're an outgroup in another society. And then there's the fact that you're an outgroup to those you used to live with because they think of you as this person who left. And, uh, and is no longer part of, of the, of the um, scene, of, of, the, of, the, of the social cultural scene. 
Um, and yes, it's, it's very painful. I mean, looking at Lebanon today is certainly very painful. And there is a role that those living abroad should be, should, should be, should be playing, and some of them are playing. I mean, I hope that no one uh, um, gets forced or pushed out of his country or of his uh, comfort zone in terms of where he lives or where he likes to live. But you, you would truly understand how painful it is to look at a place you, you well connect with from a distance and feel that it does not represent you, it does not look like you, mm. and it does not want you. Is that how you feel right now? Because yes. I'm curious, so if you don't mind me asking, and you can say as much as you'd like about this, do you feel like your work, and, and I'm going to emphasize this, your Instagram page in a way is almost like a postdoc for social media. It's, it's really, it's quite engaging. And sometimes I see you with these fantastic charts that I have no idea what you're doing, but you sort of, you're looking at it, it's like, that's Lebanon. It's like a Venn diagram on a Venn diagram with sort of nodes. It's, it's quite fascinating. Do you feel like your work is not being appreciated as much as it should be because of that distance? Because I'm curious where that's coming from, at, le- at least right now. I don't think it's about my work or being appreciated as much mm. as it is about um, me as a person not feeling um, connected to what is going on, what is happening, how people are living their lives, uh, to the identity of the place, to the fact that this place does not represent me on a deeper level anymore. But to be honest, it never represented me on a deeper level. But um, but that's a different thing. Now, do I feel that a place such as Lebanon needs to not appreciate science, but rather acknowledge the fact that there are experts in certain fields that can help contribute to the problem. And people have been either discrediting them or or ignoring them or thinking that they know better. And I just, sometimes it it hits me like, I mean, if you know better, you would have been performing better. You're not doing very well. Maybe it's time that you let someone else, you know, look look at the situation, especially when someone is actually looking at the situation and is telling people that this is how the situation looks. Uh, uh, and I mean, yes, certainly people like to disagree in general because they like to, um, well, because they feel threatened. Mm-hmm. They, they feel threatened with what they know, with what they have, and they don't like the, the, the feeling of uh, this instability, this insecurity, new data might bring to the table. So they'd rather say that, you're wrong. We know what we have. What's happening? We know what's 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 going on, and each to their own. You know, I've, I hear different theories from from different places, but uh, um, I believe that politics um, is a science, and there are different aspects of politics that are very scientific. Mm. And I think it's about time that people who actually understand the field uh, <laughs> have 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 a, have a different uh, uh, you know contribution to the field rather than having. Uh, uh, people who just uh, are partisans or just belong to different parties take take different roles in, in the political uh, scene as if politics is some some sort of uh, uh, literature and we just we're disagreeing over which which era in, in in the in the in the history of, of language we want to use politics is not like that it's a, it's a very dynamic science that relates to uh, complex variables in societies which really is based on on, on scientific findings and theories so yes, uh, this plus the fact that I don't feel myself uh, identifying with the Lebanese uh, situation um, makes me feel the way I feel today. Now we certainly don't don't have a common identity. Yes, mm-hmm. that's 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 a taken. And people, 
<laughs> people, especially uh, uh, people who are leftists or radical leftists, do not understand uh, uh, my approach to common identity and assume that I'm promoting nationalism in a way that is right-winged in politics, which is not the case. Uh, our common identity can be uh, uh, um, um, an umbrella of, of uh, different uh, social and cultural uh, um, faces of, of the national identity or faces of a common identity. So it's, we can stretch this identity to include this, this uh, different, different sorts of, of faces uh, to our culture, to our society. But the main thing is to have a narrative that explains how did we start? What is the what is the beginning of this nation? How did this nation start? Is this a nation? Because some people still disagree that this is a nation. Some people still don't want it to be a nation. Mm. Some people still think that it's a part of Syria. Some people think it's, it's 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 an extension of an Islamic republic somewhere, either in in in, in uh, uh, Ankara or or uh, or in Tehran. And all of these are problematic because they indicate that we don't have a narrative. Mm. So having a narrative for this state is essential for us to coexist. And then having a common destiny, which is also something we don't have. So having common destiny means that, yes, we can agree on, on the economic platform we want to use. Uh, sorry, disagree. We can disagree on, on the economic platforms we want to use. We can disagree on, on, on the social uh, um, policies we want to implement. But we all have the same higher interest for the state. And that only comes if we share a common destiny. Again, we don't share a common destiny, and that is why we cannot agree on common higher interests. Is, is, is the civil war an important event in the history of this nation? Very. But is it unique? Not at all. Mm. It is not a unique event in the history of this nation because it only represents the fact that we are different groups with different identities that have failed to group these identities under one umbrella and are living afraid of each other. We are afraid to coexist. And this fear of coexistence is leading to a lack of trust and a heightened sense of symbolic threat. And this is leading to conflict, different kinds of conflict. And one of, one of, the, you know, one of the faces of conflict is an armed conflict. So is the, civil, is, is the civil war in that sense unique? Not really. Is it important as an entrance to solving the problem? Yes, it can be because it, we because we have a fixed date in history where we can all remember. We all know what happened in a way. We can use that as an entrance towards building this common identity uh, um, based on the common pain we felt, based on the common uh, emotional turbulence we had, based on the losses we've uh, encountered during during the the, the, the war years. So. Um, we certainly need to address the civil war. We certainly need to go back there. And it surprises me. It shocks me when I hear people say, we just need to forget the civil war, or this is not the time for the civil war, or we ended the civil war. And of course, the funniest part of all is when, when a sectarian partisan member comes out to say, my party leader has already apologized for the contribution of the party in the civil war. Mm. I don't think people understand how reconciliation happens. <laughs> I don't think they understand the concept of transitional justice, the concept of accountability, the, the concept of uh, forgiveness, the concept of asking for forgiveness. We have a war that, that uh, 
resulted in 120,000 casualties in human lives. And a million people that fled the country, it's not enough for 20 or 30 sectarian leaders to meet in a city to decide that the war is over. And this is certainly one of the fundamental problems that we are still facing. And it is absolutely essential that we address this problem if we want to move forward. You know what? If you're, if you're a leftist and you don't believe in a common identity, let's forget the common identity. Let's agree that we had a war that resulted in 100,000 casualties. The families of these people need to forgive those who committed these crimes. The communities that these people belong to need to forgive those who committed those crimes. Those who committed those crimes need to acknowledge their contribution to the war and move from celebrating their martyrs as saviors of the country to part of the, or members of the, of the, of the uh, uh, martyrs that the, the country has lost. So we need to stop identifying ourselves with our, with our sectarian martyrs and say that they fought for the country. They all fought for the country. They all fought for their vision of the country. They all fought for what they thought was right. We still have not resolved the problem of who was right, who was wrong. We as a people, where do we stand? What do we want? Do we support the Palestinian resistance? Was it a mistake? Was it wrong? Was it an occupation? These, these questions remain unanswered. And because they remain unanswered, they are part of our current situation today. Today, we get people saying that, let's normalize relationships with Israel. Others that say, Israel is, a, is an, occup uh, an occupation force and therefore resistance is a right. And then we fight over who's more loyal to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we don't agree on what is Lebanon. There's a social pact. There's an understanding that Lebanon is a multitude of communities that are power sharing their, their authority, their, their consensual governance mechanism is one of consensus and perhaps uh, it's a bit outdated today, but it made sense to these communities 100 years ago to a point. Under French rule, it maybe is not the most ideal variation of what Lebanese wanted, but let's say it worked to a point at addressing these multitude of identities. And you said it earlier, and I, and I mean, absolutely, not too long ago in our history, if you're living in Beirut or Tripoli, you were Syrian or you self-identified for the large part as Syrian. And Lebanese, that term has evolved. It's old, but it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as time passes. So let's say that 100 years ago, this experiment of putting these identities together, it worked to a point. And it wasn't constant violence. It wasn't constant war. At the end of the day, there was an independence. There were periods of prosperity. And as you rightfully noted that, yes, there was a war, a long civil war, a costly civil war, but that's not unique. And that many countries have experienced civil war. So Lebanon is not sort of, uh, it's an anomaly here. But going into why these identities chose violence for all those perceived threats, or, or for that matter, real threats, does it have to do with identity? Or is it more to do with state infrastructure? Meaning that, is it possible to have no shared destiny? Whether that's right or wrong, but is it possible to actually have that 
or for that matter, have disagreements on the starting point, not seeing it the same way, but that the country would still stand, that it wouldn't collapse. Now I'm trying to reconcile identity with everything that happened and also acknowledging that it wasn't always chaotic. It wasn't always problematic. The economy wasn't always collapsing. It wasn't always dark the way it is right now. And I know this is a bit naive. It's a naive question on my side, but I'm just, I'm trying in a way to, to play devil's advocate that do you really need that starting point and, and destiny for the country to function? And is, is the state part of that story? Is it meant to in a way alleviate those concerns rather than letting people fight it out? Many people would argue that we don't need a common narrative or a common destiny to mm. operate. Mm. And they would take us back to years of prosperity in, in our Lebanese economy in the 50s or 60s, even the, the late 40s. Now, my concern was with this as, as someone who, who studies human behavior or looks into human behavior, mm. there's a fundamental question here to be asked. Would me and you or you and I live together, coexist, and be able to play the roles of, of uh, um, or collaborate together if we disagree on our higher interest. Mm. If you think that you winning and me losing does not affect the state, Right. Would you would you seek to, would you seek winning? You would. Mm, mm. Okay. Would you think that you winning and me losing is is a victory to your idea of the state? Yes. Right. When when we don't share when we don't share a common destiny, you'd think mm. that your win and my loss is a win to your to, to your to your idea of the state. Now my question is, have not the sects in Lebanon been doing this? ever since independence. Have mm. sex not been doing this with each other? Have mm. they not been, been fighting over power, over who gets what where? Has not the civil war resulted in, in, in an agreement that took away from marinates their executive power? Mm. Because of that, because of the fact that there was a power, dif power, there was power difference in the groups. I disagree with you when you say that we, we agreed on, on, on the... On the on this social uh, social experiment, we did not. Mm. There were mm. there were major uh, 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 power differences between sects. There was a sect that thought they're dominant because they had the French support. They thought that this is Lebanon. This is how Lebanon should look like. We are the rulers of this country. And there are other sects who were the farmers, who were the the who, who were the disadvantaged groups, who were the untouchables in a way. Those who felt like we're nothing in this state. Uh, you, I agree, and actually, I should I should sort of nuance what I what I meant. Maybe I said it sloppily. Was that it? It would not be what you were referring to as that leftist model that this is going to be a civil. Uh, it won't be a secular state. That there will be communities that find a way to to compromise. Less to do with the imbalance of Christians and Muslims. I, I misspoke in that sense, but I meant it more that this does not resemble any country in the neighborhood. This is an odd Ottoman way of governing, and that it seemed to match. The, the, it seemed to, in a way, allay the insecurities among communities in terms of identity and expression to, to a point. But I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Yeah. I just wanted to no, nuance yeah. it. Yeah. No, I get it. But, but, but again, uh, when I speak about common identity, I certainly do not mean going to a secular state. 
Mm. We can mm. have a common identity while maintaining our differences. Mm. A common identity does not mean let's go to a secular state and and let's let's uh, uh, give give up our sectarian identities and just hold on to a new common identity which we will create. Mm. I mean, this might happen in a hundred years after we have a common identity, but I'm I'm not suggesting in any way that this should happen. Mm. We need to coexist as we are today. We need to to to, to accept that to acknowledge, and this is another problem that. For instance, uh, uh, groups in the revolution are at, so, at some point ignoring that we have a sectarian culture. No, the Lebanese people are not ready to go to a secular state. No, they're not ready to, ch- to, to change the status quo. No, they don't feel like we're all brothers and sisters and uh, you know the problem is only with the corrupt politicians. This is not the case. Mm. We have a sectarian culture, which we need to acknowledge. Mm. Acknowledging that would allow us to sit on one table and discuss how can we govern this state that has all these different concepts, different narratives, different stories? So what I'm suggesting is really us addressing the problem at hand rather than ignoring it exists. Because what we're doing now is we speak about uh, uh, civil peace and coexisting and living together every time anything happens. Because... Our state of coexistence is this fragile, you know? Yeah. Every time there's a shooting in Beirut, you hear people going out saying, we need to protect our coexistence. We need... So, it's, so it's, it's just actually this fragile. It's, it's, it can break down at any moment. Yeah. Why? Because we keep ignoring reality. We keep ignoring the facts at hand. The facts at hand are, we are different groups coexisting. We are not one group. We treat each other as outgroups. So we consider each other to be members of different groups. Hmm. And we have a threat. We feel, we, we, ha- we, we feel symbolically and realistically threatened by members of other groups. So we don't share a common identity. We're not willing to acknowledge our differences. We treat each other as uh, 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 not equals. We're, we're not equals as outgroups. We are threatened from each other. And then we want to live with a lie of coexisting and we can make this work. Uh, yes, uh, no, maybe we can make it work, but in reality, we cannot make this work. And, 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 and to prove that, you look at Lebanon over the past 200 years, for instance, and every time a foreign country tried to interfere and to mandate how we should live our lives, this ended uh, this ended up being a, cat- a catastrophe what is the higher interest of the state is it is it and i'm sorry just to interrupt is it monopoly of violence is it simply a monitoring of borders uh, an executive branch that does not take orders from abroad is it uh, a senate that never materialized that's meant to allay sectarianism and put it in its rightful place but what exactly is the higher interest of the state that didn't happen that, that maybe should have happened Yes, your, your, your question is about the technical definition of higher interest, while my concern is acknowledging we need to agree on a higher interest. I personally do not care what is the higher interest so long mm. as we, as a collective, agree to it. Is our higher interest uh, in fighting against all the Arab countries in the region and uh, maintaining ties with, with Iran? If that's the case, let's do this collectively. Is our higher interest to to normalize relationships with Israel? If that's the case, let's do that collectively. 
But to do that collectively, we need to admit that we come from different backgrounds, yes, but we need to coexist because it happens that we live in this one nation. And we need to agree, accept the fact that no one, that not one group is capable of enforcing their ideology or their dogma, or what they want or what they believe on the rest of us. So we need to agree on coexisting and agreeing on coexisting is creating a common identity. Because, so, but, but, but it should go beyond what happened in 1943. It should, it should go beyond what happened between Charles Khoury and Yad Salah. It's not only, so what, what they did is that they split the country between Muslims and Christians. And they've said that, the, that Lebanon is a state with, a, with, an, with an Arabian face, right? Or an Arabian uh, uh, spirit. What does that mean? <laughs> it's clearly not this face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, so th this is not enough. This is not enough. We need to agree on the major issues. We need to be pragmatic. We cannot, we cannot keep this, we cannot keep the, 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 the ideological fight going, ongoing between us because we will never agree. I mean, people on the left will never agree with the right, and people on the right will never agree with the left. People anti-Israel will never agree with pro-Israel, and pro-Israel will never agree with anti-Israel. This is these are facts. Those who had the worst experiences with with Palestinians and Syrians are not going to go say, and you know what, they are resistance, and let's let's hug them and open open more more borders and let them have let's have them in. Again, it's not about what I think. It's not my opinion. It's, the, it's, it's what the collective agrees on. But what I'm saying, we have lots of differences and it's impossible. It's impossible to construct a state, to build a state, to achieve any sort of a functioning government or a functioning nation without us agreeing on what is our higher interest. And our higher interest needs to be a pragmatic approach. Well, I want to pick your brain on this. Since there was time after independence for something that should have happened that didn't, which is achieving those goals. And I'm going to, again, from an amateur's sort of understanding, my understanding in Lebanese history is that this was never really dealt with and that there was no real push for it either. Whether it's among the sectarian leadership, whether it's among the average citizen, that these things were not thought of. And I don't know, I don't know, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, that if that is the way to actually fixed Lebanon, it's still not being discussed. Or if it is discussed, it's in fringe corners. It's not sort of on the table. It, it is not being discussed. It's not being discussed. So can no. I just, I'll pick your brain here. Is it on the back burner or even perhaps not even there because of violence? That violence brought out the worst instincts of any of, I mean, this is not Lebanese in particular, but that the healing process and then forging the, this common identity and achieving real coexistence did not happen because that perceived threat or that real threat was always there. Communities constantly felt insecure by default. And then violence made that almost impossible. Am I reading it right? And I'm not talking about now, I'm talking about really in terms of historical context, those three decades from, from independence to civil war. Is that the story? That, that the threat of violence was always there and then communities mm. did not address those concerns? I think, I think, um, I don't know if, if communities were aware of the possibility of us going to a civil war. Mm. 
I don't know if they were aware that they would have done anything uh, uh, differently. But what I do know is that if we want to look objectively at history, I'd say that we have been doing effective politics, which is emotional politics, mm. for a very long time. And <clears throat> effective politics is technically saying that we only react to events and we make decisions based on our emotions. Now, I don't want to complicate the scene, but I have to in this sense. All the political leaders have been working on their own. Yes, they've had advisors, but we, we have always relied on the one, on the one man show uh, sort of thing in, in, the, in the Lebanese politics or in the politics in the region, mm. say. Mm. So if I'm a Christian leader or a Druze leader or a Sunni leader or whatever leader, I give orders. I mean, I might have people that would, would whisper in my ear a word or two, but it's not, it's not culturally accepted, acceptable for us to discuss decisions. So it's enough for me as a, as a leader mm. to feel emotionally threatened or ignited or uh, uh, motivated to make a decision that might end in, in, in a conflict. Right, right. And I think this has happened in the civil war over and over. And this has happened in 2008 when, 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 the, yes. when the 7th of May happened. Yeah. Again, because, I mean, someone might, might say that well, it was a calculated risk. It was not a calculated risk. It was an emotional reaction to, to a threat that Hezbollah felt. And this event is an indicator that we are very amateurs when it comes to political uh, decision-making. We do not understand the, the, the processes of, of proper decision-making, and we do not calculate the consequences of our actions. So I'm taking you somewhere else. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm not, the, the point was not to complicate the, the, the scene. No, no, but on the contrary, but, but I, I'm glad you mentioned May 7th. So we're going to jump, I mean, we'll, we'll get back to the civil war and, and that issue, but just in terms of that, I, let's, let's go down that road and let's assume you're right. It's not a calculated risk. It's an emotional outburst of, of insecurity and seeing what could be a substate group's demise, and they're fighting for survival. Let's go. Let's go that, down that road. Is it still the same core issue of that violence is an option, meaning that Hezbollah has weapons and other groups have toy guns, but they still have some something, but that Hezbollah has a strategic advantage in violence. So whether it's a calculated risk or an emotional reaction, the capability is there to choose violence. Unlike a situation that is pacified, and I know this is sounding extremely romantic and perhaps absurd, we're not the only country that has a, a diverse group of people living together and finding their way. Switzerland is a very strange country, a very, very weird way of collective, uh, whatever, Jedi Knights Council-like governance and rotations and all that. It's different languages, different nations. They choose almost always a very, uh, an extremely peaceful way of addressing Why? their. Yeah, and exactly. So let's Why? go down. Let's do that. Yeah, I, I, and you can say as much as you'd like here about about that comparison without making it too rosy. Lebanon. I I, I think yeah. I, yeah. I think we have we have 
higher tendencies to be emotional. And um, this is motivated, or this, this sense of negative emotions is always capable of motivating our actions. So we are motivated by our sense of negative emotions. And that is anger, frustration, fear, inability to control ourselves, inability to, to hold, hold back our emotions, uh, inability to think about the consequences. Now, I, I don't want to go into discussing why, but I think we have a very high tendency to be motivated by our emotional responses, by our emotional feelings. So, yes, being highly emotional, again, does that mean that you can't get angry? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you feel threatened, if I, if I, and actually I've asked that uh, to the Venice population in, in, in January. So if you, if you feel threatened by a different group and I gave them a set of options, I would feel angry. I'd feel frustrated. I can't hold myself back. I blah, blah, blah. And then I gave them the other options, which are, I can't control my emotions. I would mm -hmm. think about the consequences. And so one is emotional and the other is, well, if not cognitive, I would say it's, the, the control of emotions, anyway. Mm. And I can tell you that we are highly emotional. Ramzi, can I ask you, is, it, is that because of, and I'm, I'm asking you as a political psychologist, is this uh, a personality among leadership that allows a population to react that way? Or is it less to do with leadership, more to do with a bottom-up kind of reaction? Because emotion is not a word I hear often, when it comes to this debate, and, and I hear it mostly, and I actually read it for the most part on your posts, and I like that you're applying this, this terminology. Is it, a, uh, is it historic? Is it just something that we're not aware of per se, but it affects us and it's affected us for a long time? Because I'm, I'm wondering why we're that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't have any data to support this. Uh, there are no research to support this. So I don't know uh, mm. how, how does the region look like, but it's safe to say when we look at the region that, that, that we see that, for instance, we have high right-wing tendencies, uh, which means we are highly conservative. Mm. We are highly religious. Uh, we hold values uh, uh, to a high extent. Uh, we believe in law and order. We respect authority. Mm. We believe in the concept of the leader. So even when you when you look at the at the revolution at the Thawra today, you see people saying we want a leader. You know, we are, the Thawra has not has not managed to develop a leader for the revolution. The concept of a leader is a very right wing approach. It's it's like we always feel that we want someone to lead because we want to follow. So when we speak about something called right wing authoritarianism or, or right wing authoritarian personality or an authoritarian personality, it does not mean per se that um, you like to be an authoritative person. Mm. It can also mean that you, you respect or appreciate authority. And I would, I would dare to say that we are generally, this population in Lebanon is generally authoritarian, which means it respects authority, it appreciates authority, it fears authority, and it always seeks leadership. And emotion is is part of that story. That there's I'm, a. I'm gonna, I'm, yes, I I I, mm. I will say that it's more driven with emotions than with cognitive ability, than with cognitive thoughts, or or being thoughtful about our reactions. Mm. So it's about 
Okay, let's 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 take um, um, fascism as an example. So let's let's consider Adolf Hitler as an example here. Why did he? One of the biggest mistakes that people ignore or do not acknowledge is the fact that the majority of Germans under the ruling of Adolf Hitler supported him. They were not suppressed. They were not uh, 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 um, afraid. For themselves, no, they believed in the cause. They believed in the leadership. They followed. He convinced them. Mm. He made he made them feel protected. He convinced them that they are threatened as a nation. Mm. Yes, he had an opposition. Of course, uh, there were some people that wanted to change him. Yes, but the majority of Germans supported the leadership. And and recent history or modern history fails to acknowledge that fact. You know, they they treat they treat Germans as like a as if Hitler came from, from, from Mars and he was occupying Germany. And that's, not, that's not true. People loved him, loved his leadership. Why? Because he provoked this trait in them, okay, which is, which is their right wing, the nationalism. He, he, he provoked a nationalist trait in them, which was driven by emotions. The guy was highly emotional. He was very influential, very charismatic. People used to fear him and respect him. And that's our kind of, I mean, we have no Adolf Hitler per se, but that kind of personality is... is, Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what Mm. I'm saying is we are driven by similar traits. Hmm. See, we love hearing an emotional statement by a great leader and, (laughs) and, uh, 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 you know, complimenting him on the voice and the depth of his his statement, you know, and how good he was saying what he was saying. And we love saying that we we lost a great man 100 years ago. We need this great man again to, to build the country again. We always, we, <laughs> I mean, please check check the posts on all, all the pages on Instagram, including those who claim that are secular. You see them pointing back to leaders in history and saying, we need these leaders today. We have this 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 attachment to to person to personalities to, to leadership in, in, in terms of people rather than in terms of systems. Right. So the, in if, that sense, the system should be emotionless, should be bland, and should treat everyone in a way as as neutral citizens. There's. And, and, am I getting it right that the emotion yeah. is born out of personality politics rather than? healthy politics that is that is less I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's certainly a thin line here mm, because again mm. emotionless politics would mean that um we would go towards an economy that is not uh, um, um, um inclusive of everyone is not thoughtful of everyone so mm, there's mm. a thin line mm. okay but but what i'm saying is our politics should not be always driven by emotions right. because that means that like we, we are easily uh, uh, threatened, we are easily provoked, we are easily motivated to do violence, you know, we are hot-headed, we can easily hold guns, we can easily shoot each other, because it's very easy for us to feel like we are threatened, you know, that some, someone is, is coming to do something to us. So this, this, this uh, uh, um, culture of, of effective politics, I think has been 
all over the all over the, the, the region, not only Lebanon. If, yeah. if we think of Abdel Nasser in Egypt, for instance, I mean, Abdel Nasser fought Israel, and then Sadat went went to do peace with Israel. Now, regardless of whether you you agree or do this or disagree with that, this only proves that Abdel Nasser has failed to build an institutionalized country. You mentioned Abdel Nasser, and. I'll give you my memory of Abdel Nasser. And I'm, I'm too young to know Abdel Nasser. I think you are too. We don't yeah. have any relationship with him. But I have relatives, older relatives, that I think treated him like a god, prophet-like. Um, typically, my grandparents' generation. If you say the word, if you say Abdel Nasser, you have to be very careful. You have to be very complimentary. And... Uh, doesn't resonate with me one bit, but I know that the older generation and in, in my sort of my own family, primarily from Tripoli, I mean, this is worshiping. Now, Abdel Nasser, 1950s, 1960s, obviously that's an Egyptian story, but it impacts Lebanon. And then you have an institution, or let's just say a figure who at least at least says that he's representing institutions or trying to build them. That's for Edgeheb, for all of his flaws, all of his flaws. You have Abdel Nasser and at least half the Lebanese population in love with him, seduced by him. And the president of the country saying, this man is too toxic for Lebanon, keep him at the border. And Abdel Nasser cannot enter Lebanon. For Edgeheb goes to the border with the United Arab Republic, with Syria, and meets him there. That famous photo of them sort of seated at the border. So you, there's Abdel Nasser. There's at least an attempt at building state institutions represented by a complicated figure, an army general, brought in because of conflict in 1958. All, all of that, which is important to acknowledge, but you have something that is pressuring a personality outside of Lebanon, keeping it at bay. And add to that, add to that, that the personality is very, very, it's almost toxic, is that he's, he's loved and he's also equally hated by the other half of the population. And therefore, it's too complicated. Leave him out. Is that what you're talking about at the end of the day, in terms of coexistence or common destiny, or at least all of that that should shield Lebanon from conflict? Is that what you're talking about? That kind of moment, or am I getting it wrong? That that is also equally problematic. You you are absolutely right. Okay. As a matter of fact, you mentioning this uh, would make it easier for me to say that when I tell people the problem is not about Hezbollah, it's about the fact that again Hezbollah is a temporary problem that was that's that's happening today. In 50 years' time, there will not be a Hezbollah, but we will have the same problem. Mm. Um, reincarnated in a different form, different phase, and with, with different personality, with different group. Why? Because we have always had the same conflict. Why? Because we don't agree on our higher interests. Mm-hmm. We don't agree on where we stand as a people, as a collective. We don't think of ourselves as a collective. We think of ourselves as different groups of different collectives. And even at our best, at our best, before the civil war, even then, we were split into two camps. Right, right, exactly. But is that man at least a 
superficial understanding of a higher interest, or is he part of the part of the story too? That in, in other words, is there anything to look back on where that higher interest was being taken seriously? Yes, I mean, I mean, certainly trying to build institutions is something is mm-hmm. is part of of trying to establish uh, a functioning state. Yes, mm-hmm. but in terms of of what I'm, what I'm referring to when it comes to higher interests and common identity and common destiny. I don't think that we have ever witnessed in history anything close to that. I see. Like yeah. we we completely ignore what, what we've done is we've, we've realized that this is a, problem, a problematic issue. That this is something we fight about. We, we disagree on where we stand on it. So we avoid it. We just assume it doesn't exist. And we think that coexistence is us sitting on something that's, you know, hurting uh, from beneath and thinking that, well, well we, we're taking it for the other party. Well, that's not how it's, it's supposed to be. We are supposed to actually, um, we're supposed to rethink what we want as groups. We, 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 we need to, to rethink where do we stand from one another. And we need to see where, where do you want to go? Because if we don't do that, Hezbollah will, re- will be resorted in the next political deal in the region. I know, you know, everyone should know by now, there's a political deal coming which will fix the problem of Hezbollah. Okay? Because there's a deal with Iran. It might take a year, it might take five, but eventually it's happening. Okay. What happens next? What happens next is we go into a couple of decades of prosperity until the next breakdown. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you on this, and that I agree. Hezbollah is fairly new when it comes to the longer problem, the longer story, and the bigger problem. I mean, the PLO was based in Lebanon. The Syrians ran the show for a long time, for decades. Hezbollah is really the last 15 years in its current capacity. It's been around much longer, but in, in its in its capabilities as we know it today, it's 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 new, and that potentially in the years to come. Hezbollah will be, the way we understand it will have changed and something else may take hold. And I I completely agree with you. But then let's take that and at least try to understand what led to April 13, 1975. Is it that this is possible in Lebanon, that you can have a militia that is circumventing the state? Fatah before, and you know what? Al-Kata'ib in the early 1970s, outside of the state's rule, but that you have militia that can that can steer politics in the ugliest way possible. Is that the common thread which brought us to the civil war and what keeps us in paralysis right now? That Hezbollah is the most recent version of it. Or, or is it more psychological at the end of the day? And I mean it more in terms of where we are, this, this breakdown, not in terms of healing and reconciliation, which I want to get into and we'll address that but more to do with why things are so bleak. But I think it is psychological. See, mm. we, okay, so, so we feel threatened by one another. We have a Christian group that woke up one day to realize they live in a, in a, in a majority of Muslims uh, in the neighboring countries and Muslim countries around. And they felt symbolically threatened. They felt that their values, what they believe in, what they stand for, is threatened. 
And they felt that those they live with within the country of Lebanon do not share with them the same values. Like you said, the, a part of Lebanese supported Abdul Nasser and therefore supported his war against Israel and therefore supported the Palestinian resistance. And this has led to a conflict that I think people don't understand. What do I mean by I don't understand? I mean, I know that the Muslims and people on the left think of Christians and people on the right as traitors. They're traitors to the cause. They're traitors to our roots. What they don't understand is that according to the Christian story or the Christian psychology in that sense, this is not the story. Mm -hmm. The yeah. story is I'm trying to protect myself from 200 million Muslims around me <laughs> that are agreeing that they want to take this place somewhere else. But is it fair to say, Ramzi, I'm sorry I'm interrupting here. I, I'll just interject for a moment. Is, is it fair to say that it's not until Fatah is visible and armed in Lebanon that it, it, it turns into something that is ungovernable? So in other words, those insecurities in the, in the 1960s, which are real, or going even earlier in the 1950s, Abdel Nasser is shining, the PLO is born, but that you don't necessarily have the ingredients necessary for a complete breakdown un until 1970. Yeah, but, 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 the, but the perception of threat was there. Mm, I mean, the mm. perception of threat, of threat was, was, the, was, was the reason that, that uh, Bashar al-Khuri and Rad Sulah actually made, made the pact. Why did, why, did they, why did they redefine uh, Lebanon? Why did they feel that they need to define mm, the state mm, of Lebanon? Because mm. there, was, there was a perception of threat that was, that was present mm. amongst these groups, mm -hmm. you know? And there was a need to coexist, yes. But it was more of a, to me, it was more of a populist uh, approach. It was a, it was a populist uh, uh, solution to the problem. It was not a proper solution. If mm. this problem was dealt with back then, we wouldn't have seen a, a civil war. That's interesting. But you this problem was what was dealt with in a very, fine, it's fine. We just, uh, we're, we're brothers or we'll get it working. We'll fix it later, you know? So That's in other what words, happened. In other words, that it, had it been addressed in the 1930s and 40s as Lebanon is born, that you wouldn't have a Cairo Accord that could push Lebanon off the cliff eventually. That Lebanon would be able to shield itself from something that's happening in the region. That's what I, if, if, see, I understand that people, people say that there's lots of geopolitics uh, involved and we're a small country. I get all of that. But if we shared a common identity, we would have simply told everyone around us, we don't care. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. we don't care what's happening. Right. We would have, as a collective nation, requested the assistance of anyone to preserve our state of not caring. Now, yes, the problem is that someone would come up and say, but I care. I care that the Palestinians are threatened or occupied. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole different problem, which again relates back to our identity. How, how, do I, how, do, how are you identifying with the Palestinian? Are you identifying with them as a Muslim? Are you identifying with them as a as a human uh, from a humanistic approach? Is it a humanistic? If it's that, us having a common identity would benefit the Palestinians much more 
because we at least would have a unified front when we speak about the human rights of Palestinians. I'm, I'm curious about October 17 and how you relate to it. I, I hear from you that there's a lot of critique, at least in terms of the expressions that were coming out of the street, that secularism or the chance against the, the anti-sectarian chance may not have been properly placed. And I, I share the sentiment with you too, and I'm glad you're mentioning these things that sectarianism is what you want it to be. It's almost like a supermarket. You can pick and choose what you want from it. It doesn't always have to be good or bad. It can be both. As long as, it, as, it, as it's expressed peacefully, that's fine. And we're, we are a sectarian society, period. There's no denying that. So I appreciate your, your focus on that. And also that these uh, terms that are used all the time, they may actually be violent. Coexistence, the way it's applied, it's a threat of violence. Uh, national unity is the most embarrassing thing, I think, in Lebanon in Lebanese history. It guarantees paralysis. Everyone forced on the table to just sit and wait for the ship to sink together. So I share that sentiment. But that kind of pushing through and at least trying to reimagine Lebanon. And my my relationship to October 17 was that it seemed like there was something that, that was going extinct and something something new that's born. And I don't know if it's as, I don't know if it's as black and white as sectarianism and secularism. I don't think it's that. But I did, I felt the sentiment on the street that power sharing along the ways that we do it in, in Lebanon was outdated and people wanted something different. And I don't know if they were using the word secularism correctly all the time, but it was used and people want a secular state. Is that part of the identity crisis and identity building, even if it's sloppy, even if it's not clearly understood all the time, but that these are words that are being used and sometimes being reimagined? Are we there now in building identity or are we still lost in the story the way we were yeah. the last hundred years? Well, there's no doubt that even if we have absolutely no intervention, we do not intervene in what's going on, this state will eventually set its course and build its identity. So it's a matter of time. But we're not there yet. Right. What I'm saying is, if we realize the problem and intervene, we might be able to do it faster. So when people say that they want secularism, who wants secularism and how? The thing is, this is very, this is still in the process of us understanding what we want rather than, you know, us putting plans. And the thing is, those who are putting plans, I mean, I've, I've, I've honestly spent time trying to read what some groups are suggesting in terms of how to move forward. And, and I've actually met with some groups. Um, if, if, I was, if I was to be very objective and honest, most of these groups are separated from reality. Okay, now I'm going to interrupt you again. I, I really, you know, I'm, I do this because I'm, I'm learning from you quite a bit and I need to make something, I need to understand one thing. This disarray, is it because of the Civil War era that we never properly addressed what happened? But I, I think it's because, it's, it's because of the baggage of everything. It's, it's because of the baggage of our history, our ancestors, our culture, our environment, uh, the pressure we've been through, uh, the wars, the assassinations, the, 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 the events, the violence. 
I mean, it's all led some people, some people to say, I've had enough. Mm. I want a secular state. But that, that sentiment. And then, sorry. And then oh, that's sorry. So, yeah. those same people yeah. realized in a week time, like, yeah, yeah okay, no, no, I want the same state, but I want it better. So I'm going to leave the street. Because we went from 1 million to a couple of, couple of thousands. This is the collective action we have on the streets. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I think uh, 10 groups and the revolution called on people to, to, to storm the streets in yeah. the angry Saturday. And the angry Saturday ended up with 2,000 people, 3,000 people. Not very angry. And if these 10 groups with all their social media platforms and all their connections, this is the amount of collective action they're able to, to uh, uh, project or perform or, or uh, lead to, then they're really disconnected from reality and they don't want to admit that they are disconnected from reality. There's a problem somewhere else, which they're not addressing, they're not willing to address. And that is people are threatened. People went back to their strongest identities, which are sectarian identities. The identity you and me belong to and the 100,000 other Lebanese who possibly live in, in, in Beirut in, in, a, in a, a very dynamic way would say, yes, that we want a secular state, but we are not the majority. We, we are not, we're not taking into consideration those who live in Baalbek or Tripoli or Saita or Sur or Shuf or we're not taking those into consideration. Those don't, don't want a secular state. But Ramsey, is that is that the visible consequence of not having reconciliation? That we still go back to our most tribal instinct? Because I'm trying to understand, given that we'd never had reconciliation, given that the amnesty law protected the worst group of Lebanese leaders that still are more or less around, is that the consequence? That you end up with a schismatic reinterpretation? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Because, because, so what is, from a psychological pers pers perspective, what is the one thing that reconciliation would do? It would help us eliminate symbolic threats. It would help, help us eliminate the feeling of, or the, or the perceived feeling of being threatened by an outgroup that wants to destroy my culture, my values, my principles, what I believe in. We still live in a country where every citizen feels that an outgroup wants to destroy my values and my principles and what I believe in. Why? Because we have not moved beyond what caused this in the first place. So yes, it's very easy that a million Lebanese will storm the streets and then some people start chanting against certain sectarian leaders, and, the, and then those sectarian leaders would go out to say, our sect is under attack. This uh, uh, revolution or what's happening in the street raises questions. We wonder who is behind this, who is provoking this. And here people in the street start feeling that their sense, the perception of threat rises again, and they feel threatened suddenly. And they look at those with them in the streets and they start wondering, are these here to destroy my sect? Are, they here, are these here to destroy what I believe in? Will, are, they, are we going to go into a fight with them? And then 
you get the other conversation which happens behind closed doors, which we are not willing to acknowledge or admit, where Lebanese families, you know, specific, specifically those who, who feel this perception of threat, tell other Lebanese members of, of their families, do you want this sect to come and kill us? Or do you want them to rule? Do you think that this revolution is going to lead to a secular country or is it going to lead to this sect ruling? It's very easy to make us feel threatened. Why? Because we have not resolved our problems. We have not resolved what caused this threat. And we have a very recent uh, uh, event in our history, which is our civil war, that we have not dealt with. Mm -hmm. And we need to deal with that if we want to move forward. It's a big question, but how do you deal with it? Given that the political class, the way we understand it, has not approached it, and if they were to approach it, they probably it would be a domino effect. And that the population is at a tipping point now where you have a frustrated, I mean, across the spectrum, an economic collapse, financial disarray, and an increasingly violent situation on the streets. Is it something that is just, will, will be dealt with at a later point? Or is it still now the fundamental issue? I, I think it will always remain the fundamental issue until it is resolved. Otherwise, yeah. any, any solution that is brought forward is temporary, is, uh, would help us deal with a, with a temporary situation, with a current situation, but it will not provide long-lasting solutions. So I think this is a pressing matter, and I think it's important and essential to deal with. How... We have 10,000 NGOs in Lebanon. The reason we have 10,000 NGOs in Lebanon is because we think the government does not do its work, the, 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 the work that they're supposed to do. And we've managed to uh, uh, come up with alternative solutions. Um, we need an alternative solution. If, if the official, if the authorities of this country, if those responsible for this country are incapable of building, of coming up with a solution, for this, we have enough manpower, resources, and expertise to come up with interventive plans for reconciliation. We just need people to believe in this. I'm not a big fan of groups. Actually, I, don't, I think I despise groups. Uh, group thought, group identity. Um, Sunni troubles to me are meaningless words. Yet that is my story when it comes to Lebanon. It has no impact on me. Um, I don't. I, I look for Sunni bones or religious bones in my body. I can't find them. And Beirut is my home, not Trablus. So for me, being uh, and being an individual and finding individuals that share enough of how I feel about this country is a far more rewarding experience. Uh, collective thought doesn't impress me. And I'm wondering, is that how you? experience Lebanon? Because you mentioned it at the beginning that it's a country that you you don't relate to perhaps as much now. And whether or not this is something you've always felt, what, what took you down this road? Because I, it senses yeah. like a personal story and you can please share as much as you'd like. I'm, I'm yeah. curious. What, what Actually, I, I, yeah, I, I think you asked, a, you asked a, uh, probably the nicest question at this stage. Um, so when I speak about common identity, and this is what people fail to understand, is that they think I'm, pro I'm promoting some sort of ideology that suits me or works with me. <laughs> while, while in fact, 
I share your views, mm. and that's probably why I don't support any party and not a member of any group. Um, why? Because I don't see myself identifying with any of them. But yeah. I acknowledge the reality of the situation, and my proposed solution or my approach is based on the reality of the situation rather than on the dream that I have in my mind. See, if if half of the population was like you and me, we wouldn't need to have this conversation. Exactly. But yeah. but we we are not the majority, like I said earlier. And because we are not the majority, and we need to maintain these ties we have with this country because some memories are too good to let go of, we need to find a way where we can coexist. And when I say we coexist, even us as, as yeah. individuals who do not identify with groups, I want to, to, to coexist with groups. Is this, I want some, if, is this something you felt here in Lebanon that you, that you recognized within yourself, that you sort of, you felt outside of what should be the comfort zone? Of course. Hmm. Of course. I, I, yeah. I do not feel I belong in Lebanon, partly because within any group, you as an individual feel threatened when you try to express yourself and you always seek comfort in those that look like you or think like you. Yeah. And in that sense, you are grouping yourself with, with those people. But, but in terms of, of, of uh, uh, identities or ideologies or, you know, deeper meaning, um, you feel that groups who hold these, these, these visions or these identities threaten you. You feel threatened by them. Uh, you, you think twice about, what you share or not share because, well, someone might not accept you. And I've had lots of incidents in, in different communities in Lebanon uh, uh, where, where communities could not accept what you had to say simply right. because they disagreed with you. And this disagreement, which threatens them, yeah. because they are the majority, it would eventually naturally threaten me. So this would lead me to feel that I don't belong. Now, it's also important, I think, to note that I um, identity per se is not my area of expertise. So I uh, study intergroup contact, which is the relationship between groups, mm. and I'm I'm um, uh, my area of, of research is collective violence. So I study collective violence, um, but my interest in identity is uh, driven by by the Lebanese reality, and the reason I tried to start, I wanted to study political psychology was because uh, weirdly, I was first impressed by the uh, by a theory called uh, system justification, which says that people are motivated to justify the status quo. So, mm. and I want to understand why, why do people who are disadvantaged justify the status quo? Right. And things, you know, naturally develop and uh, you find yourself interested in other concepts and other, other thoughts and you, you move on to other places. Although uh, the first political psychologist that I read a book for was called, uh, is called Jonathan Haidt. And Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called um, The Righteous Mind. Why do good people uh, fight over uh, politics and religion, I think. Um, so... He's a political psychologist, but his approach is from um, moral psychology. So he tries to approach politics from a moral perspective. Hmm. Um, do we have a moral uh, dilemma? Um, is the left morally different from the right? And is this why 
we have we see differences in society. Um, so I was I was really was really influenced by that sort of school when I when I when I started my my studies as a political psychologist. But later on, I was you know, I was driven I, I was motivated to to understand violence um, as a personal liking i guess i'm 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 very drawn towards why what would lead people or groups to form militias why they refuse to give up militias what sort of power do they want to uh, you know power difference they want to keep or maintain and more importantly can we peacefully find a way through understanding what motivates people to participate in armed conflicts, to either end armed conflicts or prevent them. Because this is really where, where I think it all um, ends in my mind. Are we capable of developing politics that are conflict-free, where we can disagree and argue and form different alliances and have different views without the need to actually become violent. Ramsey, it's fascinating terrain. And just hearing you describe disenfranchised communities and system justification and the relationship to political violence and, and all of this is, is really, for me, it's a learning curve. And I enjoy your work. You make it easy on the amateur like me to really get engaged in the subject. You're the first political psychologist I've spoken to in the 257 episodes I've released. You're the first. And I'd like to have this conversation again later. Thank you. And thank you. I, I enjoyed this very much. I look forward to seeing you again. And for anyone listening, I'm going to embed the Instagram account. And uh, it's the polit political psychologist, but I'll embed the username as well. Ramsey, it's an honor. Thanks. Likewise. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.